So per, the perseverance of the saints, or as Grudem says, remaining a Christian. And uh, he poses two questions right there at the beginning of the chapter. He says, and I think the key word here is true. Can true Christians lose their salvation? And then a second question that he poses is, how can we, so he personalizes it, how can we know if we are truly born again? So here's a question. Have any of you ever doubted or had doubts about your salvation? Some are saying yes and some are saying no. I have. And I would say... Um, probably one of the biggest doubts that I had was when I began to go to seminary. And it's not that I, I doubted that I was a Christian. The doubt in my mind was, when did this actually happen? And some of you have heard my testimony, but when I was seven years old, uh, my dad was a pastor, and he, was, he had actually his pastor, who was his home church pastor, come and preach a revival. It's a Southern Baptist church. And of course, being the pastor's son, I was there every night, whether I wanted to be or not. But God wanted me to be there. And I can vividly remember on Thursday night, so the fourth night of the revival, um, and I didn't know what it was. I just felt this tremendous guilt and this tremendous burden about my spiritual condition. And I, you know, being seven, I didn't really understand all those things. I just knew that I was very much... Um, in turmoil and so the fifth night when the pastor gave his invitation um, I was so overwhelmed that literally as a seven-year-old I was clutching the pews trying not to leave the pew and go to the front and all I can say now is that the Spirit of God was stronger than my resistance to the Spirit of God and so I did release myself from that pew and I was embarrassed because here I was seven years old and I'm thinking all these people in the church, uh, they probably think I'm perfect. Of course, they all knew that I wasn't because I was a, a rouser. And uh, so I went up front and as soon as I confessed my sin to the pastor and my dad was standing right there and I repented, immediately I felt not just clean inside, I felt as if I was completely pure and holy although I wouldn't describe it that way as a seven-year-old, but I, I had this sense that I was completely pure inside. And so I always kind of hung on to that as I began to doubt my salvation as a teenager and even as a young adult because I just thought there's no way that I could have that kind of sense about my condition and that kind of conviction about my condition, conviction at seven had God not actually called me to himself and gave me the, the courage and the faith to say yes to him. And so um, perhaps you've had a similar experience. Uh, Wanda, my wife, would say that she, her, her uh, salvation experience was more of a progressive experience where she began to know and grow in her relationship with the Lord. Um, but anyway, these two questions, can a true Christian lose their salvation? And I think the key word here is true. And then... Uh, how can we know if we are truly born again? So we'll talk about those things. So in the book, he Gruden gives us a definition of the perseverance of the saints. And I can read it to you, but if you have your book open and you're in that place and you want to read it to us, that'd be great. Anybody want to read that uh, I'll read definition? Thanks, Steve. The perseverance of the saints means that all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives, and that only those who persevere until the end have been truly born again. So I think there's two, there's kind of two key phrases there. The first is that all those who are truly born again will be kept by our power. No, he says by God's power. Um, so God's the one that's keeping us and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives. And only those who persevere until the end have been truly born again. I think really he's just restating the fact that first you must be born again, and then because you are 
born again. God gives you the power through the Spirit of God and the church, the fellowship of the saints, to be able to persevere to the end. And I experienced this with my mother back in November because after a long battle with uh, congestive heart failure, she was admitted to the hospital. I went up there the first day she was admitted and spent seven days in the hospital with her. And I can vividly remember in the, um, the um, ICU unit, I was sitting there and I was reading and she said, suddenly she said, Mark, am I dying? Has anybody ever asked you that question? Especially a parent or someone close to you? Mark, am I dying? And God gave me the wisdom to stand up and walk over to her bed and just say, Mother, I said, only God knows the day that we were born, the day that we're going to be born, and the day that we're going to die. And I said, so I don't know. And that was my response to her. But of course, in just a few days, she in fact did die. But what I saw was that she... And one other time I walked into the room, before I walked into the room, the ICU nurse said to me, she said, your mother's been talking to Jesus. And I said, well, that's great. I said, that's the best person she can be talking to. So I knew in my mind that she was, she, she knew that the end was coming, uh, that she was persevering to the end, and she had assurance that she would be in the, in the presence of God as soon as she physically left you know the earth and so that was a great comfort to me and, and it would be to, to all of us so kept by God's power not man's power and continuing in the Christian life is one of the evidences that a person is truly born again uh, just quickly a few of the views that I did some research on, on one was a Roman Catholic view and I read several things about this and um, but in essence they base their salvation and the, the end result on several things, but one is if you commit a mortal sin, then of course you're not going to go to heaven. And there's even, they're, they're not real clear on what a mortal sin is. There's almost degrees of mortal sin. Certainly if you murder someone, that's considered a, a mortal sin. Uh, but there's even different degrees within this view of mortal sin. But if you, if, if you commit a venial sin, which is a lesser sin in your mind, then, of course, uh, as long as you continue to do the things that you need to do as a Roman Catholic, then hopefully you'll, you'll be in the presence of, of God when you pass away. Then we have the Wesleyan-Arminian view. And in essence... It is possible for someone who is truly born again to lose their salvation. And I found this very interesting because um, Wanda grew up in, in the Methodist church, not a Wesleyan church, but in the Methodist church. And actually for about five or six years when we first moved to Atlanta, we were members of a United Methodist church. And um, I didn't really know that they, they held this view, generally speaking. Uh, then he talked about the Lutheran view. Um, I didn't make any notes on that one. Reformed Christians, it is, it is not possible uh, in the Reformed tradition, it's not possible for someone who is truly born again to lose their salvation. And then most Baptists, they don't say all Baptists, but most Baptists uh, really follow the Reformed tradition as it relates to um, the security of your salvation the eternal security of your salvation. Although they did have some nuances about this phrase, eternal security of the believer. And so um, I went and I read, have any of you read the Baptist Faith and Message 2000? It's actually on our website. Um, and there's a section in there about, um, they don't call it perseverance of the saints, but they call it eternal security. And it's uh, it, it affirms that Baptist, at least in our Baptist faith and message, believe that once someone is truly born again, that that person will persevere to the end and they will be with the Lord in heaven when they pass away. But I think the key is, for all of us, someone is truly 
born again or is a true believer. I'm going to play, if you don't mind, and I hope you'll be able to hear this. Um, this is a 51-minute sermon from John MacArthur, but you're not going to listen to 51 minutes. was Westminster Abbey. The room was called the Jerusalem Room. The greatest theological minds and biblical scholars in England, the famous Puritans gathered with lords and commissioners to spend five years of intense study. Five years of discussion to produce a statement of doctrine true to the scripture and faithful to the gospel. By 1649, they had completed what became the most familiar Westminster Confession of Faith. In that creed is a statement on the security of salvation, accurately calling it perseverance. In a brief and unambiguous statement, the Westminster Confession, chapter 17, section 1, says, quote, They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from a state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved, end quote. Need I say they got it exactly right. Scripture is full of promises that led to that creed, that led to that conviction. Scripture is clear on the perseverance of the saints, that those who are truly saved will be brought into eternal glory. Our Lord Jesus said in the sixth chapter of John, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and him that comes to me I will not turn away. All that the Father gives to me I will receive and raise him at the last day. Whomever God gives to the Son as a love gift to make up the Son's bride will be there at the wedding feast in glory. My sheep, our Lord said in John 10, know me and I know them. And I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. Neither will anyone pluck them out of my hand or my Father's hand. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, perhaps an overlooked comment. Verse 7. You are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless. Who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. That is the promise of God. Another benediction, familiar and beloved at the end of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling or falling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling. There are many other statements that promise to us that eternal life is actually eternal. This was widely understood by the Westminster divines, but they also understood 
what perseverance did not mean. It did not mean that Christians do not fail in their lives, in their obedience. It did not mean that Christians do not fail seriously and possibly to death. For among the Corinthians, many were weak and sick and some had died for how they came to the table of the Lord. So the Westminster Confession added this, nevertheless, believers may, through the temptations of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them and the neglect of their means of preservation fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve his Holy Spirit, come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others, and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. In other words, perseverance in the faith does not mean perfection. Perseverance of the saints, they understood to be a better expression of this great truth than <clears throat> eternal security. Eternal security has come to be a more popular designation, but it's not nearly as accurate. Eternal security doesn't, doesn't describe the necessary means by which our eternal life is secured. Even though believers may sin, may sin seriously, may sin repeatedly, there are some things they will never abandon. There are some things they will never abandon. They will not come under the full dominion of sin. They will not lose trust and confidence in the Lord and the gospel. They will not shun holiness and fully embrace iniquity. The doctrine of perseverance essentially is that the life that is from God is permanent. The gift of eternal life is permanent. It is a gift of sovereign grace. It is a gift of mercy. And it is permanent. That's why Jesus said, he that endures to the end, the same will be saved. Security in Christ is tied to perseverance. It is tied to perseverance. 1 John 2.19 is a very interesting portion of scripture. This is what it says. They went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out from us that it might be made manifest they never were of us. When somebody abandons Christ, abandons gospel truth, abandons virtue and holiness, walks away, that is not a failure of eternal life. That is evidence of superficial faith. They never did believe or they would remain. So he covered a lot of ground in eight and a half minutes, and he actually covered some of the sections that we read in the book. And this has been a, I wrote up here, I put dangers, but a danger, because I have seen this many times as an adult with friends who are, who I, know, who I believe to be uh, truly born again. And it typically is a parent or a grandparent who holds on to the hope that their professing child or grandchild has been saved. But they know for a fact there's no evidence in this person's life that they're truly born again. 
And of course, none of us truly know, only the Lord knows who is saved and who is not saved. But there should be enough evidence to convict us whether we are saved or not saved. And so my point is, we have to be, we have to love one another enough to admit that there's a high probability that this particular individual is probably not truly born again. Is this making sense? How many of you have experienced that with friends or family members where they just hold on to this, this hope that this person is born again and yet there's absolutely no evidence that they are born again? And so my point is that we, we really need to be loving enough to help each other as we deal with these kinds of issues uh, with the people that we know and the people that we love and help them through that process. Would somebody read in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 through 14 because this, this should be, to me, this is the bedrock passage in terms of, or one of the bedrock passages in terms of um, our confidence in God helping us persevere to the end. Okay. Ephesians chapter 1, 13 and 14. Okay. okay, Linda. Okay, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You said 14, please? Please. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Okay, so who, who guarantees our inheritance? The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit does. And um, I don't know how to pronounce this Greek word, but this Greek word that's translated guarantee is a legal and a commercial term that means first installment, deposit, we all understand these terms, down payment, pledge, and represents a payment, and I think this is key, a payment which obligates the contracting party to make further payments. Who is the contracting party in this passage? Jesus. It's God, isn't it? So we, we can have confidence that God is, is sealed us with the Holy Spirit and then God is going to, to help us persevere to the end so that we are in his presence when we pass away. Um, we have responsibility ourselves, but we know with confidence that God is going to help us do that. And then um, in the book, if you want to turn there on page 791, I'm just going to read uh, a few sentences in the second paragraph. Um, when God gave us the Holy Spirit within, he committed himself to give all the further blessings of eternal life and a great reward in heaven with him. This is why Paul can say that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we, until we acquire possession of it. All who have the Holy Spirit within them, all who are truly born again, have God's unchanging promise and guarantee that the inheritance of eternal life in heaven will certainly be theirs. God's own faithfulness is pledged to bring it about. And then also, if somebody would turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 and read verses 3 through 5. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Those are great verses. <laughs> they are. <laughs> so, so who has caused us to be born again? God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Mm -hmm. He's caused us to be born again. 
And um, <coughs> I'm sorry? And what does the word mercy mean? Pardon me? Undeserved favor. It's, it's God withholding what we deserve, right? Right. We deserve his wrath, so he withholds his wrath because of who we are. Um, and then, of course, when we're in Christ and the Spirit of God is living in us, then what God is, you know, in humanistic terms, what God is seeing is not us and our filthy rags. He's seeing the righteousness of Christ in us. And um, so he, he goes on to say, um, the word guarded is a present participle and gives the sense that you are continually being guarded. It's an ongoing action by God. So God is, is bringing it to completion, uh, as Peter writes in this verse. What about... Uh, the statement that he makes, only those who persevere to the end have been truly born again. Does that make sense? Only those who persevere to the end have been truly born again. <clears throat> Why would they persevere to the end? Because <laughs> they're born again. They're truly born again. And we know that God is going to preserve us until the end. While scripture repeatedly emphasizes that those who are fully, fully, truly born again will persevere to the end and will certainly have eternal life in heaven with God, there are other passages that speak of the necessity of continuing in faith throughout life. They make us realize that what Peter said in 1 Peter 1.5 is true, namely that God does not guard us apart from our faith, but only working through our faith so that he enables us to continue to believe in him. In this way, those who continue to trust in Christ gain assurance that God is working in them and guarding them. So if I could just give a couple of scriptures for us to read. Uh, if somebody would take John chapter 8, verses 31 through 32. And if someone would take Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. And then Colossians 1, 22 through 23, Hebrews 3, 12 through 14, and 1 John 2, 19. Who has John 8, 31 through 32? Don't be bashful. Okay, thank you, Linda. Oh, you said John 8, right? 8, 31 through 32. So Jesus says to the Jews who have believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So what is our responsibility? Abide in abide. To abide in, in uh, God's word. <coughs> Matthew 10, 22. I have it. Okay. Uh, all men will hate you because of me. He who stands firm to the end will be saved. Okay, and Jerry just two weeks ago talked about persecution. It's not something that we ought to be surprised about. Jesus told us that we were going to be persecuted. And he will make sure that we finish to the end. Colossians 1, 22 through 23. David. 22 through 23? Yes, sir. He is now reconciled in the body of the flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So who's holding us uh, holy and blameless? Jesus is. And then uh, Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. If you, if you have it, go ahead and read Take it. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, 
as long as it, as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Okay. So what is our responsibility with one another? We're to help each other persevere, aren't we? Yeah. And, and to live a holy and blameless life. I don't know about you, but I have a wife at home that helps me with that. Mm-hmm. Praise God for Wanda. First John uh, two nineteen. Okay. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. And Jesus had a disciple that was not a believer, didn't he? A true, a true born-again believer. And who was that? We all know. Judas Iscariot. So even though he had 12, one of the 12 wasn't even a believer, although he appeared to be a believer to the other disciples. But Jesus knew that he wasn't. In fact, he said that uh, uh, the devil was in him. I'm paraphrasing. So I'd like to uh, next just very quickly read an article from John Piper from Desiring God about perseverance of the saints. I'm not going to read the whole article. I'm just going to read, oh boy. And when you know it, I'm not connected to the Internet. Oh, the reason I'm not is because I didn't connect this one. I connected this one to the Internet. Bear with me just one second. Okay, so I won't read the first part of this. This is definition of perseverance because he, he restates the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith that John MacArthur talked about at the very beginning of his sermon, so I won't read that again. But he says, we must persevere in faith if we are to be finally saved. And really all he does, he just quotes scripture. So he talks about 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. Now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast, we heard that one before, the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. I won't read all of these. We read Colossians 1, 21 through 23, uh, 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. It is a trustworthy statement, for if we died with him, we also will live with him. If we, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, I love this, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Praise God that he's faithful, and even though we're faithless a lot of times. Then he talks about the obedience or holiness that comes from faith is necessary for final salvation. And I'll just read a couple of passages here. Hebrews 12, 14. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Romans 8, 13. If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions. What makes you tired just thinking about all these horrible things, doesn't it? Factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. What is he saying? He's, he's saying, of course, they will not inherit the kingdom of God, but what is, what is he describing here? A life that's characterized by those things. Which is evidence that they're not truly born again. I mean, we all sin, and diff- at different points in our life, I think different temptations come into our lives. And sometimes we fall into those temptations and we do sin. But if your life represents habitual sin, and I think that's pretty good evidence that you're not truly born again. And that's the way I think we need to help one another 
particularly, obviously, if you believe someone's born again, then you want to help exhort them to live a righteous life and turn away from sin. But if somebody habitually sins and people keep telling you that person's saved, well, there's no evidence, really, and no fruit that that person's saved. And so we have a responsibility to try to help that person at least know the gospel and respond to the gospel or at least give them a chance to respond to the gospel. And then um, I'll just read the headlines here because he's really kind of reiterating some of the things that uh, Gruden says. Those whom God has justified will be kept by God for final salvation. If, if God does the justifying, then God's going to do the keeping, right? Declaring us righteous or not guilty. And then, he, then his final thing here is falling away from faith and holiness shows that we never belong to Christ. I mean, how many have you heard, well, that person was a Christian, but they're not, they're not living a Christian life today, or they haven't been for a long time. They could, they could be born again, and they could be in a season of rebellion or sin, but if it just continues on, the chances are they're probably not a true believer. And then he concludes by saying, Therefore, let us be earnest to make our calling and election sure. Second Peter 1.10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Fight the good fight of faith. First Timothy 6.12, Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. You know, when I, at seven years old, when I made my confession and claimed Jesus as Savior, I don't know that I understood him to be Lord at seven, but um, but I had many witnesses there. I had my mom and my dad. I had people in the church that knew who I was as a seven-year-old and then word got out that I was saved. So I had teachers at school who knew my mom and dad, coaches that coached me in football. And uh, if I didn't behave the way they thought I should be behaving, they would usually call me out on it. And certainly my parents, if it persisted, they would get word that their son was not behaving the way he should behave. So I had a lot of witnesses around me helping me um, persevere, even as a, as a teenager. All right, let me, bear with me just one second here. I've got too many objects going on here. We've talked about uh, what are other than Judas Iscariot. What are some other examples in Scripture that you may have read about, where it appeared that people in the church were believers, but it became evident that they probably weren't. He gives several examples. Uh, Paul gives several examples. Demas, pardon me. Demas. Demas. Oh, that was in was that in a, Titus, at the end. Titus at the end there. Because Paul's talking about those that were faithful, and then he mentions Demas, I think, as one that was, was not faithful. Uh, Paul writes about, uh, in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty six. Paul writes about false brothers secretly brought into the church. Who would, who would be involved in bringing false people into the church <laughs> other than themselves? Satan. Satan would be bringing people into the church to, to disrupt the church and to bear false witness to the community about their behavior. And so we have to be diligent in the church for things like that. We have to be aware that those kinds of things happen. I, um, I was getting my car worked on, this has been six or seven years ago, 
and it was going to be a while before it was finished, so I walked about a half a mile to a, to a shopping center where there was a Starbucks, and I had my Bible with me, so I sat down at the table and got a cup of coffee, and I was doing a Bible study, and I look over, and there's another guy sitting at a table, and he's got his Bible out, except his Bible is color-coded everywhere, and it's not published that way. I mean, he's color-coded his Bible in different passages, and he's written notes in his Bible, and, and I think I was the one that... that initiated the conversation with him because I thought he was a brother. And I'm telling you, as I got into a conversation with this guy, it became apparent to me that he was not a brother. In fact, this is what he said to me as we're both standing up face to face with one another and I'm about to leave the Starbucks to go get my car. He said, who do you say that I am? I'm serious. He wanted me to believe that he was the Messiah. I was, I was like shocked. And I said, you are not the Messiah. We're standing up in Starbucks. There's people all around, and they're hearing this conversation. I have never experienced anything like that in my life. And I hope I never do again. But uh, this guy was, he was a friend of the devil. And yet he masqueraded as a believer. And just like Satan, he had the word of God, but he was misusing the word of God. Can a believer, what is the evidence of genuine conversion? And what can give real assurance to a real believer? What is evidence of genuine conversion. Fruit of the Spirit. Okay. The fruit of the Spirit. Because if those things are not evident in someone's life, then more than likely they're they're not a believer. What else? Oh, it's a condition of the heart. Okay, the way they behave, mm -hmm. both not just publicly, but privately, especially. A desire to read and study the Word of God. Because how can you grow, and how can you know if you're not reading God's Word? What, Paul? A desire to gather with God's people and worship. Okay. How many of you know people that claim to be Christians and yet rarely attend a church? It's just, it, it, it boggles your mind, doesn't it? And when you have conversation with them, they have all kinds of reasons why they don't do it. And so I often wonder if they're truly born again, because if they were, they would want to be around God's people. They would want to worship God with others. Or if they're offended in talking about Jesus, but they say they're Christians. Mm -hmm. Gruden says continue to receive the sound teaching of the church so they're under the authority of the church and sound teaching within the church so they have to submit don't they um, you, you see evidence of their relationship growing with Christ to have the growing relationship with Christ. And they're obedient to God's commands. They want to be faithful and obedient to God. Here's a question. Do I see long, a long, or here's another way to look at it. Do I see a long-term pattern of growth in my or their Christian life? I, I say that I see my sanctification as growing and then sometimes it kind of plateaus maybe sometimes it goes down a little bit and then it starts to grow again so it's a, it's a continual process and it's not always an upward trajectory uh, I, I don't think it is for any of us but hopefully we're on an upward trajectory over time and uh 
What is the difference between perseverance of the saints and eternal security? He, he talked about that. Uh, in fact, MacArthur mentioned it in his sermon. If you have your book, uh, at least let's see what Gruden has to say on page 806, and I'll, I'll close with this. 806, the last two paragraphs. At this point, in terms of pastoral care, with those who have strayed away from their Christian profession, we should realize that Calvinists and Arminians, those who believe in the perseverance of the saints and those who think that Christians can lose their salvation, will both counsel a quote-unquote backslider in the same way. According to the Arminian, this person was a Christian at one time, but is no longer a Christian because Arminians believe that you could, in fact, lose your salvation. According to the Calvinists, such a person never, never really was a Christian in the first place and is not one now. But in both cases, the biblical counsel given would be the same. You do not appear to be a Christian now. So the Calvinist says, or the Reformed says, you are a Christian, but you've backslidden. The, the Arminian says, you were a Christian, but you've lost your salvation. But you can get it back. But in both cases, the biblical counsel given will be the same. You do not appear to be a Christian now. You must repent of your sins and trust in Christ for your salvation. Though the Calvinist and Arminian would differ on their interpretation of the previous history, they would agree on what should be done in the present. And in the last paragraph. But here we see why the phrase eternal security can be quite misleading. In some evangelical churches, instead of teaching the full, uh, the full and balanced presentation of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, <coughs> pastors have sometimes taught a watered-down version, which in effect tells people that all who have once made a profession of faith and been, been baptized are eternally secure. The result is that some people who are not genuinely converted at all may come forward at the end of an evangelistic sermon to profess faith in Christ and may be baptized shortly after that. But then they leave the fellowship of the church and live a life no different from the one they lived before they gained this eternal security. In this way, people are given false assurance and are being cruelly deceived into thinking they are going to heaven when in fact they are not. And so... I'm not suggesting that it's not appropriate to invite someone to make a decision. But I think where we've missed the mark sometimes is when we have, we've accepted someone's decision, sometimes even knowing or doubting whether that decision was genuine. Have you ever had that experience? I mean, one of the greatest pressures I ever feel is when someone makes a profession of faith or says they want to join the church and we bring them into this room to have a conversation with them and uh, it's it's a have any of you participated in that and I'll I tell you when it's really the hardest is with children I worked with Awanas for so many years and we Awanas was such a good program those kids know the gospel backwards and forwards and so to ask them a question about the gospel they can give you the answer but until you see it, you know, I almost would take an approach of trying to talk them out of it. Mm -hmm. Because if you can't talk them out of it, then you know there's some true heart change. So with children, it's especially hard. But. And I had an experience one time where a mother was pressuring her child to make a profession of faith. And it was very obvious. Right. And so then we have to be willing not to allow a parent to do that to a child because they're really doing a great disservice to the child and to themselves. So we have to be very careful with that. Any, uh, any questions or comments? We're about at the hour mark. Yes, sir. Paul? I have a little saying with respect to perseverance of the saints. Okay. As defined by Calvin, Calvinists. And that is, if I seek salvation, I can't find it. If I find it, I can't lose it. If I lose it, I haven't had it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Any other comments or questions? 
I mean, this is not, I mean, this is not easy to teach. And, uh, you know, one of the things that, that I struggle, struggled with just in preparing this particular lesson, I went back and I looked at the different views of perseverance of the saints or eternal security. And then I also looked at the uh, reform of the Calvinistic view, the TULIP, you know, the acronym. And I actually wrote it out today and I checked the ones that I felt confident I could say yes to. And the ones that I didn't feel confident I could say yes to, I left blank. <laughs> and all I'm saying is, it's not easy. And it does require a lot of study, a lot of thought, a lot of prayer. And uh, you know, we may, we may disagree in a particular area, um, but it may not be an area that's, that's absolutely critical. So um, I hope that makes sense. Well, thank you. May I close this in prayer? Father, we do thank you that, um, that you love us, uh, that you called us to be your children, that you even gave us the faith to believe. You took a heart of stone and you made it a heart of flesh. That when we responded to you by faith, that you immediately placed the Spirit of God to live and dwell within us and give us the power that we needed to live a life that would be pleasing to you and to be obedient. And Lord, we just pray that you would help us as we go about our activities uh, the rest of this week and this weekend that we would represent you in such a way that others might see Christ in us and might be drawn to you because of what they see in us through you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Don't buckle up. We're talking about death.